Brother Eddie has asked that we mark him number eight, and we're certainly delighted to do that and use it at the proper time in the service this morning. Let me take just a moment on a note of personal privilege and express appreciation to those men who so capably and ably fulfill the pulpit, delivering the Bible study lessons as well the last couple of Sundays. And certainly my family and I are more than excited to think about your encouragement of us, your prayers, your attendance at several of those gospel meeting efforts uh, at, uh, at the congregations in White County and Jackson County. We'd certainly like to thank each of you for your kind prayers and your attendance at them and the ways you were able to. It was very encouraging to us and to those who are also in attendance from those places as well. It was indeed a series of occasions in which we had the opportunity of attempting to encourage those gospel meeting efforts, but we're delighted today to be back at this location with our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. The character of the love that we share here and the opportunity to give thought to the Word of God is just something so special indeed. It is with that in mind, I would again invite each of us to think very carefully about that gospel meeting here. Two weeks from today, we will have Brother Tom Holland with us. As you know, he is a speaker on the GBN network, the Gospel Broadcasting Network, and for many, many years has been a well-known preacher in the Nashville area, the Middle Tennessee area. He's the director, for instance, of the Nashville School of Preaching. And there's just a number of ways in which we can appreciate his soundness and the opportunity he'll bring to us to deliver the Word of God. So may we clear our calendars and may we do all those things to help encourage and bring that meeting in the way that would be most pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. This morning for a few moments I would invite you to think with me about a lesson as noted just a moment ago by, by Matt as he made note of that reading. The Organization of the Church. As we know, the church is such a special organization in the sense that the Old Testament pointed forward to the marvelous matter of its establishment. And certainly the New Testament highlights so powerfully the nature of that establishment as well. Here are some thoughts that perhaps will begin us on our journey this morning. Isn't it so true that the way in which a group of people are organized surrounds fully and develops fully the nature of their mission the nature of what objective they have, and what purpose they are supposed to serve. After all, that's true when we consider the organization of various groups, be it club organizations or organizations at work or school. They are organized in a way to meet the mission that's been set before them. As we reflect on the church, its organization, I would invite us this morning to reflect on some passages that speak most powerfully to its organization as well. The church's organization, the way in which she goes about her business is not arbitrary. The way in which she submits to the great authority is in fact not arbitrary. As we begin that, let's make these observations. First of all, it's entirely fair to begin at a location like this. We, of course, around us today observe all sorts of various organizations in the world of religion. There are those who are organized as follows. There is a local congregation and then a few adjoining congregations perhaps comprise a district. And there is a particular leader over that district and then a several districts are in fact involved in a region. And ultimately that perhaps comprises an entire country and ultimately the entire world. And step by step, that hierarchy is set before us. 
Sometimes there are various names used for those. One hears about elders, bishops, cardinals, dioceses, and other terms that describe the supposed hierarchy in these religious organizations. As we come, however, to the New Testament, we find very interestingly a, a very simple organization. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we notice immediately that the Master Himself proclaimed that He would establish, that He would build, that He would found His church. It was singular on that occasion. And in fact, we notice the following. Later in Colossians 3, verse 17, we have this statement. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Isn't it true then that we are to appreciate the authority vested in the Christ? He had said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority, all power hath been given unto me in heaven and in earth. That power that was vested in Him. We then should appreciate in the church He has chosen to present that body in a way that meets His desire and His will. Again, you and I aren't left to structure the church the way that we would wish. We're left to structure it if it's to be pleasing to Him in the way that He has detailed. Notice further on that slide. One other thing that sometimes you and I can so well understand as it comes to an organization, be it religious or secular, is that sometimes it displays such confusion. It displays such perplexing character. May we be quick to say it is not so of the church which our Savior established. In 1 Corinthians 14, we have these two passages. Verses 33 and 40 of 1 Corinthians 14 still remind us, God is not the author of confusion. And so it is the church is intended to be an organization whose structure is an orderly matter. It's not confusing. It's not chaotic. Furthermore, the very last verse, let all things be done decently and in order. As you and I strive to understand that orderly organization of the church, I would invite us to reflect on it for the remainder of the lesson this morning. It all begins with a text that Matt read for us earlier. In the first two verses of the Philippian letter, as Paul addressed the congregation at Philippi again, it was to them that he said, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately, in the salutation, if you please, of this letter, Paul addressed his congregation, and did he not make note of the saints, the beloved members of the body of Christ that were part of that congregation at Philippi? Paul was thankful for them. He encouraged them. And he was so desirous of them coming even to a stronger and more noteworthy knowledge and application of the will of God. But you'll notice that there is a special mention of both bishops and deacons. Who are these bishops and deacons? And in what way were they a part of the congregation at Philippi? I would invite us to take a few moments and address those two terms, asking about the nature of the inspired terms used and the nature of those gentlemen that were made mention of on that occasion. The saints with the bishops and the deacons. So what about these bishops? 
first of all, as you give thought to some of the concepts on this slide, these bishops that are mentioned on this occasion, the New Testament makes mention on a number of occasions of gentlemen like these. These men who occupied an office. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, specific mention is made of the office of the elder, the office of the deacon. It was an office, if you please. That office, as it is described here, leads us to some of the following obvious questions. What did these men do? What about the nature of the authority that they had? In what way did the congregation work with them and beneath them? All of those questions are very worthy of some serious consideration because they touch exactly the whole matter of the structure and hierarchy of the church. One of the first things you might note is the actual term that Paul used. He did not say bishop, singular. It was plural. And in fact, in every place we find mention of these bishops in the New Testament, the usage is always plural. Maybe that's very significant in a number of ways, but not the least of which is that there's to be a plurality of these bishops, of these elders in a congregation. There's not to be just one. There must be at least two. We'll find later there's extraordinarily good reasons for the appreciation of there being at least two. But for now, you'll notice that plurality leads us to recall what happened in Acts chapter 20. On that occasion, as Paul was involved on the missionary journeys, he in fact sent and had the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and to meet with him. During the course of that meeting, we find again that there was a plurality of those men. There was more than one of them. So whether it be the church in Philippi, whether it be the church in Ephesus, or the other congregations of which we have record, they always had at least two elders. It was not to be just one man serving as the elder in that specific congregation. It is case beyond that we notice that the choice, the appointment, if you will, of these men also was not a matter that was arbitrary. Just because there was a man in that congregation didn't mean he could serve as an elder. After all, 1 Timothy 3 as well as Titus chapter 1 lists a number of qualifications that these men were to meet. It is true that over the centuries there have been occasions in which men have chosen to look somewhat trivially upon those qualifications. That they were only for the New Testament era that today they are not quite as important that isn't so. The Holy Spirit, as inclusive of those qualifications then and by the nature of the development through time, they are still as significant. A man, if he is to be a scriptural elder and to be appointed into that office, needs to meet all of those criteria, every one of them. You'll notice in that chapter, namely 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus 1, a number of qualifications are listed. That's why it's so important that when a congregation reaches the position of appointing elders, it's significant to look with care upon those qualifications and to ascertain men that meet them and that would be thus able to scripturally fulfill that office of the elder. Beyond the matter of those qualifications, you'll notice some of the statements about what those men do. We raised that question earlier, so what does a bishop do? These verses state the matter very carefully and also rather plainly. In Hebrews 13, 17, we find this statement, 
obey them that have the rule over you. Reference was made to these men who were in a position of leadership. They ruled over that particular congregation. Beyond that, you'll notice in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and following, that Peter himself, an apostle, gave an inspired description also about these elders. He said, they are to take the leadership. They are to, in fact, exhibit the leadership of that congregation. Maybe that's in part what leads us to the terms that the inspired writers used under the direction of the Holy Spirit. These words that we have used so far, words like elder, words like bishop, they all come from these Greek words, and I have uh, written the ideas at least on the screen before us. First of all, episkopos. The Greek word that's translated in a number of these places in reference to the elders. So what does that word episkopos mean? That word, as you can see, has reference to overseer. It has reference to one who attempts to ensure or at least to try to develop the accomplishment of things in accordance to, to the authority and to the way in which it should be done. Overseer. A very interesting term, isn't it? You'll notice beyond that, though, there are other passages, such as the passages in Acts 20, in which those elders of the church in Ephesus were referred to by the word presbyteros. What does that word mean? As you can see, that word has reference, again, to one typically who was certainly not a novice, as those qualifications would demand, but a more seasoned gentleman, one who is a bit older in age, who could thus serve by wisdom, knowledge, and experience as the leader. Again, that overseer of a congregation. It is a bit intriguing to notice that the Holy Spirit used these terms interchangeably. And that reminds us forevermore that it's not as if there's a hierarchy of elders in one congregation. There is but one office of elder. Those passages in which they're used interchangeably, I've listed on that slide. Throughout the ages, then the assertion by some of the Holy Spirit's discussion of two different kinds of elders is not to be something substantiated. These elders, these bishops, these overseers maybe at the very bottom part on that slide, point us to one more term. This is the one that the religious world has chosen to use so inappropriately. The word pastor. Countless, it seems, are the number of times that I, by casual conversation and speaking with others, have been called a pastor. I am not a pastor. Our elders are the pastors of this congregation, not me. I am privileged by God to preach, and that's the extent of my effort and work here. Thankful to be a fellow brother in Christ with you. The pastors, as is used in only one verse in the New Testament, that passage of Ephesians 4.11, highlights again the nature of the shepherds, those that are watching this flock, and those are our elders. It is a bit sad to give thought to the way in which that word has come to refer to the preacher when that's not the way the Holy Spirit used it. And it may well be a, the elders are and may serve as preachers as well. But thankful unto God ought we to be for the degree in the development of these overseers, those who are bishops, those who are the leaders of a particular congregation. When you think about the work of those elders... 
safe to say that a number of warnings are thus delivered by the Holy Spirit relative to their efforts. In fact, here are just a few of their considerations. Isn't it true that we learn so well from the days even of the Old Testament, pointing forward to the potential danger of those in that position? Even as we prepare to look at some of those verses, might I invite you to think with me so easily of what could happen. Suppose there were a congregation. There was but one elder. Suppose they did that which ought not to be done. They had but one man serving as the leader, and that man became engrossed in error. He came over the course of time somewhat gradually to accept that which is not true, that which is not taught in the Word of God. But if he is the only elder, if he is the only one in leadership, he could then enforce or at least assert that error on others. What a danger. And obviously that degree of danger extends all the way up the hierarchy. Suppose you had one bishop serving over a number of congregations and that man becomes engrossed in error then obviously he could greatly influence a whole host of congregations also in the way that's not right, and thus error would spread so powerfully and so quickly. We learned earlier that such a plan was not to be. Each congregation was to have at least two men. Hopefully, even if one of them, by virtue of his own failure, became engrossed in error, the other could at least determine sternness and steadfastness and a wholesome givenness to the Word of God and remain steadfast and true to what is true and not allow that error to spread and influence the precious souls of so many. As you can see on that slide, these Old Testament passages, Jeremiah 23 is but one. Maybe Ezekiel 34 is the single strongest Old Testament passage warning the shepherds of the ancient period of Israel how dangerous it was for them to lead the children of Israel in a way that was wrong. They were leaders. God expected them to lead correctly and to lead appropriately. By principle, is it any different for us today? How thankful we must be, should be, for faithful and strong elders who love the Lord, who love the souls of men, and who are determined to see that that Word is lived and presented in so powerful a way. It is true that among the characteristics of those elders, one thing must certainly go without saying. We've mentioned that they are described as overseers, leaders, if you will, of a congregation, but that does not mean that they lead separate and apart from the headship of Christ. Colossians 1.18 continues to read like this, And He, namely Christ, is head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Christ has all preeminence in the church. As such, an elder is simply a man who strives to not only live the Word, but to assist and encourage others to do the same by His example and by His assertion of that Word in the nature of the church. You'll notice then on that slide, look at a few of these passages that remind the elders even that they are to serve in light of the delegation of authority through the Word of God. Acts 20.32, as Paul addressed those elders of the church in Ephesus, it was to them that Paul very touchingly and very tenderly said, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. 
I would invite you to think that in the verses that follow that one, Paul shed tears over the sadness and the emotional event in which he was now probably never going to see those elders again. Paul was headed to Jerusalem. Those elders headed back to Ephesus. It may well be he never was privileged to enjoy a time of sweet communion with them. And the very last parting words to them that he ever said, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. It is the sacred text. The marvelous word of God that they were to use in their position as an elder. They were to in fact teach it to make sure the preacher taught it. They were to in fact appreciate the powerful guide of that word of God. You'll notice that passage in Acts 20.32 only brings us to yet another. In Titus 1 verse 9, the elders are given also another charge. And in the midst of that passage, they're given a charge to stop the mouths of the gainsayers. If a man were to climb into this pulpit and preach what is not true, preach what's false, our elders, we should appreciate, would be entirely right to stand up right then and there and stop that sermon so that men and women, boys and girls, wouldn't be influenced by this false teaching that a man was proclaiming. They are to stop the mouths of those who are the gainsayers. As we appreciate that kind of love for the truth that an elder would have, can we not appreciate that it is all again based on the Word of God? Maybe one final thought about those elders. The New Testament makes mention by name of some elders. Maybe first to our mind comes the gentleman named Peter. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says he himself was an elder. In fact, doesn't that make Peter a somewhat very special gentleman? He was an apostle of the Lord, but he also says he was privileged to be an elder of the church. Isn't that wonderful? You'll also notice that John at least makes usage of the word elder in referring to himself in the first verse of both 2 John and 3 John. When we think about these gentlemen serving as an elder, what a blessed occurrence we have today to see congregations intending to live by the organization set forth in the Bible. But you'll notice in addition to the elders, we notice Paul also made reference to the deacons. Might I invite you to think about them as well. Again, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 11 and following, mention is made of the office of a deacon. So here is another especially recognized office within the church. Those gentlemen, those men who are privileged to serve as a deacon are such that some of these thoughts obviously are very important. That word deacon comes from an original word that means a servant. And so these men, again, are privileged to serve in a particular fashion or way. Those examples that we have would seem to lead to these thoughts. That in that first century era, that the elders gave their attention to the Word and to the characterization that would come from living holy in line to it. Those deacons gave their efforts in such a way that they could assist the poor, the destitute, with those physical needs that they had. Maybe the example of Acts chapter 6 highlights for us the nature of those deacons. We remember there that the elders were beginning to be a bit troubled. They were such that they were not able to preach or at least to hold forth the nature of the Word of God as they would need and like because the Grecian widows 
were not being ministered to in the way that would be proper. Their needs were not being met. There was thus the appointing of some men occupying an office that appears to be that of a deacon in which they met the needs in that way so that those elders could again turn their attention to a development and a setting forth of the Word of God. As you can see, the work of a deacon is again one that the New Testament lifts very, very highly. It's an honor to serve in either of these offices. As you'll notice also in terms of those deacons, again, not just any man can serve as a deacon. There are qualifications that have to be met. 1 Timothy 3 lists for us, beginning in verses 8 and following of that chapter, some qualifications that a deacon is to meet. And so again, in a congregation, when the time comes to appoint or to select men to serve as a deacon, that congregation should look with great care to those qualifications and the nature of the men who have been at least nominated to see whether or not those qualifications are met in the way that would be a pleasing matter unto the eyes of God. As you'll notice, the nature of those deacons, it is before us that we find again their service is described in a way that's different than the elders. They are not called the overseers. They are not called the bishops, if you will. They are simply recognized as special servants. A congregation should be very thankful for its elders, wholesome, godly men who serve in that capacity, but they should also be thankful for those deacons that also serve in that way as well. By virtue of the word elder and what we learn that word to mean, these deacons are then submissive to the elders just like the other members of the congregation are. And it is in light of that that we come to notice these additional observations. The New Testament makes mention of other workers in the church. People like teachers, people like evangelists, and as we think about the opportunity that's ours to use our talents and our skills and our capabilities in a way that would be a blessing to God for the benefit of others, these are some of the ways in which we are able to do that. How thankful we should ever be for the opportunity that's ours to use these in the way that God would have us. It might be fair, though, to say this. As you and I previously discussed, those in positions of leadership, we, ha we have exhausted now all that the New Testament says about the nature of the structure and organization of the church. All those others that we mentioned, such as dioceses and regions and districts and so forth, those are not to be found anywhere. It is for that reason that we should respect so highly this organization of the church. One of the blessings that this leads to is this. From what we've studied... These elders are to reign. They are to, in fact, preside in a local congregation only. Peter expressly said that they are to exert leadership among them, in, uh, among those over which you rule, and do so among them. That choice of preposition suggests that they are among them in the congregation. They are not ruling over some distant congregation a hundred miles away or perhaps a thousand miles away. That kind of matter is entirely foreign to the New Testament. They, in fact, are to rule over these congregations of which they are a member only. There is no authority, none, 
for the exertion by one man over a different congregation of which he is a part. It is for that reason that you'll notice the words I've chosen to use. These words, independent and autonomous. I realize that latter one especially seems a fancy word, but it really is very simple. Each congregation of the Lord's church is independent of each other. Nobody has a right in another congregation to tell us here the way in which to do things. Nobody in other congregation is to tell our elders what choices are to be made. They make the decisions for this local congregation. By the same token, autonomous also highlights the authority vested in us. Meaning that nobody else anywhere in the world, be it pope, bishop, cardinal, or otherwise, gives directions to this congregation. We are absolutely autonomous of all others. That means that we are all bonded together through our mutual love of the Word of God only. We are not bonded, bound, if you please, to a man or group of men anywhere else than here. That degree of autonomy vests itself in a powerful display of keeping error at bay. I highlighted to that thought earlier in the lesson, but maybe it's time to revisit it carefully. Imagine again congregations that all submit to the same leadership. We have several congregations in Putnam County, well over 50. Suppose there was one man who was the leader of all 50 of them. If that man again became misled, misguided, misunderstanding of the sacred text in some vital way and proceeded then to demand each congregation to follow that, it would be possible to lead all 50 of them into error almost at the same time. But as long as all 50, as described in the Word of God, are independent and autonomous, that means, doesn't it, that each one can keep at bay the thought of error. If one man in some place becomes engrossed in error, then others can try to influence and guide while keeping themselves steadfast, true, and faithful. God's plan is by far the best, as it always is. This matter of autonomy is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 17. On that occasion, as Paul spoke to the church in Corinth, highlighting to them that they themselves in Corinth were responsible there was no other congregation anywhere dictating to the church in Corinth what they were or were not to do. The nature of that autonomy has been, of course, seen so powerfully as we give thought to what happened in the history of the church. When the church was established in the first century, in the pristine development of Christ Jesus and those apostles, it first of all was so blessed by those that were faithful and true and directed as it ought to have been. But over time, there arose philosophies, doctrines, and other kinds of teachings that were not in accordance to the Word of God. And slowly and surely and rather gradually, the church lapsed into error. You and I recognize all of that as we give thought to the Restoration Movement as it was preceded by the Reformation Movement. Over the course of hundreds of years, there was the development of things wholly absent from the Word of God. Practices that were being taught and believed, characteristics of what was being asserted that are not to be found anywhere in this book. And you and I are so well familiar with some of them. As you and I think about the nature of all those practices, the time did finally come 
that people began to appreciate, where's the authority for this? And as they sought carefully for it in the Word of God, it was not to be found. Ultimately, as that restoration movement came so wonderfully to sweep over the area of this part of the world and others, there was a return to this book for its authority in all matters, including the organization of the church. Thankful that you and I can appreciate the existence of these elders and deacons. In local congregations, no higher hierarchy is it all to be found. We do find Jesus as the head of the church. As that headship is set before us, maybe it prompts us today to ponder so interestingly. What about the nature of what you and I have seen in days gone by? What we so often see as we look at the way in which religious bodies are constructed does it meet the simplicity that we have studied this morning? The headship of Christ and beneath that only in each local congregation, elders and deacons. Thankful we can be for God's simple arrangement for this organization and how that it helps us see that all the others are substitutions of men that in fact are completely inappropriate. In Matthew 15 verses 7 through 9, which we will use to close our lesson this morning, we learned on that occasion that Jesus, as He spoke to those individuals, He said, This people honoreth me with their lips, and draweth nigh to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And on that occasion the Lord so powerfully said it like this, that there are these who profess to be drawing near to me. They speak as if they are attuned to the frequency from heaven. But yet, in doctrine they deny me because they teach what they want, what they prefer, and what the creeds of men may say, when all the while they have substituted what God has said, having removed that and put in place the doctrines of men. What a sadness. What a tragedy. Human hands, my friend, never touched the church of our Lord. The Lord dictated it. He set forth its doctrine. He set forth its organization. He set forth every detail of it. Human hands never touched it. And today, if we are to honor the Lord and Master, we again must simply follow in completeness and in totality every detail of the church, including its organization. As we are reminded today about the specialness of that organization, I would hope that each of us, perhaps as we close this lesson, could ask ourselves a personal question. We have cast the spotlight today on the organization, but surely we realize that He too has spoken about other particulars like the plan of salvation. Not only has His humanity tried to change the organization, He's tried to change the plan of salvation. He's tried to change the order of worship. He's tried to change every particular because isn't it still true if you let somebody take an inch, the old saying goes, they'll take a mile. So if you reason that you can change one thing, why not change everything? No wonder we need to be fully convinced of the all-authoritative nature of the Holy Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, to quote 2 Timothy 3.16. Today, have you submitted that plan of salvation? It may be there's one or more in this audience who knows that you aren't right with the Lord. Things simply are not well with your soul. If we could help you by, making, by assisting the Lord Jesus in terms of making things right with you, 
realize the plan of salvation has been delivered in plainness and in such great simplicity. You need to hear the blessed news of the gospel that you're a sinner and Christ Jesus came to save sinners, Luke 19, 10. In that belief, you appreciate the nature of what the Lord did for you. Furthermore, you repent of the sins in your life, turning aside from them, intending to commit them no more. Confess then the name of Jesus as your master and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. Every example in the book of Acts highlights the same. Furthermore, you notice if you are a wayward Christian, one that once has known the blessing and joy of faithfulness, but no longer you do, why not come back today to your first love? We'd be honored to pray with you. And if we could do that, we would only invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.